Dear Father, we do thank you, Father, for the beauty of the world you've created, which we can appreciate perhaps best of all in this season, in which things are green and growing again, Father, in which rain is thankfully returned for us here. And, Lord, the, the promise of, of a summer that lays ahead, Father, these are things we, we rejoice in and we thank you for them. As your word says, Father, that your faithfulness is evident in the seasons, in their regularity and their dependability. Uh, a simple picture for how we know you are in your heart and in your purposes. Reliable, dependable, faithful. Father, we endeavor to be like you. And the word that we have this morning in the book of Hebrews is, is all about helping us understand the imperative to be faithful and to be dependable and reliable in our witness and in our walk of faith. Father, we know that to get there requires that we make some changes sometimes in our lives and in our thinking and in our actions. So if we're going to change, we have to see that change, have to understand it, have to be convicted. So, Father, that, that process involves some pain and some discomfort, but we know at the end of it, Father, lies something wonderful. So we ask you, Lord, that you'd give us the, uh, the heart to go through it with you in your word, in what we see this morning and in what we see every morning as we study. Help us to have the desire, Father, that comes only by the Spirit, to serve and to obey you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's return to the final chapter of Hebrews 13. You may remember this is the chapter in which the writer gives us a list of exhortations on how it is that we are to live out our faith boldly and, and obediently. And as I mentioned last week, each point in this chapter is rooted in something that the writer said at the very end of chapter 12, which was that we are to make our life an acceptable sacrifice of service to the Lord out of gratitude for what he's done for us. And the way you show gratitude to the Lord is by living according to his commands. Last week, we studied the first three of the exhortations that you will find in this chapter. All of them, if you looked at them broadly, all of them deal with our witness. They all deal with how we witness to the world about who Christ is and who we are in Christ. The writer said last week that we have to remain open to receiving strangers and showing hospitality to them, even if that might involve some risk of persecution when we open ourselves up in that way. Secondly, the writer says that the church has an obligation to honor the marriage bed according to God's word. And that's especially necessary in a culture where sexual impurity is common and accepted. And then lastly, he asks us to live free from the love of money by being content in a world that only seeks for more and more and more. Now, I want you to imagine the power of a group of Christians who were routinely doing these three things, just these three things. How different would that group look from the rest of the world, from a world that lacks hospitality or a world that indulges in marital unfaithfulness or lacks contentment? How compelling would it be to have a faithful, loving, hospitable, content group of human beings in the midst of such a world? Well, when you imagine that contrast, you get the point of why the writer is emphasizing that we would have all of these behaviors as priorities in our life, because they make our witness that much more effective, and our message, therefore, stand out in a very useful way in the world. Conversely, if we don't look any different than the world, then they have no reason to think we have any different message, do we? It's, it's just that simple. So now as we move forward in the chapter, the writer continues to offer us opportunities to stand out and to witness better. In fact, the exhortation he's going to offer now lies at the very heart of what it means to be a witness to the truth of the gospel and to Christ. Look where he goes in verses 7 through 9 as we open this morning. The writer says, 
Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. First, he says, remember those who led you. The Greek word for remember literally means to observe carefully. And so the writer's asking us to concern ourselves with observing carefully these examples set by certain men. And then as we consider what they did, imitate their faith, that is, imitate the way they lived out their faith. Now, you can tell he's not speaking generally about elders or leaders. He has a certain group of men in mind. He's speaking here specifically about apostles. These are the ones he said who led the church in the past, past tense. In the very beginning, the church was led exclusively by the apostles. That was their mission. That was their reason to exist in the early days of the church. Now, over time, those men lay hands on other men and in doing so called them into leadership as well. Not necessarily into apostolic leadership, but into leadership at some level in the way Paul laid hands on Timothy, we're told, and set Timothy up as a pastor of the church in Ephesus. But in the very beginning, it was the apostles who led the church. And the writer says, these men spoke the word of God to the church. Friends, that's our confirmation that he's talking about the apostles, because only the apostles were gifted to bring forth the word of God to the church. And as we've discussed before, the apostles were essentially the prophets of the New Testament. That was their mission. One of their main purposes was to bring the the word of God as we now see it recorded in the New Testament. They spoke and, of course, later wrote the word of God to the early church. The writer here does not say, by the way, that these men wrote the word of God in his day because they spoke primarily in the day of the writer. It took centuries more before the rest of the New Testament canon was actually written out and available to the church as we see it today. At the time he wrote this, mostly that truth was circulating by word of mouth. And then finally, he says, think about the apostles, think about who they were, what they did, what they said. And then he says, imitate their faith. The result of the apostles conduct was rapid, strong growth. If you read the book of Acts, you see this laid out. It records the faithful life of service that each of the apostles did in the church. The book Acts should be the Acts of the Apostles. That's really what the book is a record of. And the apostles' ministry was responsible for a multitude of converts in the early church. First in the Jewish community, second in the Samaritan community, and third in the Gentile community. There can be no better pattern than to follow the one set by the apostles. Would you agree? Now, obviously, you and I stand at a distance from this. The writer wrote these words to a group of people who were alive in the time of the apostles and knew them personally. Some of the apostles were still alive even when this letter was written. But what about you and I? You and I have never laid eyes on an apostle. How are we to do what the writer here is asking us to do? That is to consider their example, follow it and imitate it. Well, as the church today, we can observe exactly what these men did and exactly what they said because we have the New Testament. The book of Acts is that record and all the other books of the New Testament are that word, including the book of Acts. So if we're to carry out the words of the writer today, then we have to consider what's in the Bible concerning the apostles and having considered what we find there, go out and imitate what they did. Imitate their sacrifices and their obedience. Imitate their faithfulness. Imitate who they were and what they commanded. And you'll be fulfilling this expectation. In the centuries since 
these men lived and ruled the church, it has become popular and still is today to claim that the apostles operated from a culturally biased perspective. Bible critics will assert that these men were products of first century Palestine, which is to say they were patriarchal, they were misogynistic, they were overbearing, they were authoritative. And so these critics would say that as you consult their teaching in the New Testament, you have to filter a little bit in what you read. You have to interpret it, understanding that it was written with a certain culture, and therefore we have to interpret it in a culturally relevant way, some would argue. They'll tell you, for example, that Paul's teachings regarding the roles of men and women are culturally dependent, and therefore they're no longer relevant for our enlightened culture today. Or the apostles' instructions on sexuality, or on church leadership, or on family life, or on money, or even on heaven and hell itself, are antiquated thinking. Therefore, we are free, they would tell you, to reinterpret these issues based on modern values. So though Hebrews would tell us to consider carefully the men who led the church in the early days and taught the church through the word of God, the biblical reconstructionists of our day would tell us to take their examples with a grain of salt. Now, I don't know if you've heard some of this or encountered it, but you certainly can if you go looking for it. It's prevalent. I believe that the Lord knew this would be coming, that this false attitude would eventually show up in the church. And so he has inspired this writer to testify to us something that stands the test of time and corrects in that wrong thinking. Look what he says in verse eight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Now, why would he insert that statement in the midst of a conversation about following the apostles, following their word, doing what they did? While the apostles were human beings, yes, and they had certain biases, as every human being does, certain cultural perspectives, yes. When they spoke the word of God, they weren't speaking according to their own wisdom. The word of God was spoken through the apostles, but it has its origins with Jesus Christ. They were speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit and writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, delivering a timeless message authored by God himself, who is not culturally dependent, who is not influenced by the comings and goings of popular thinking. God's word never changes, friends, because truth never needs to change. That's the essence of Scripture. Jesus is always culturally relevant, and yet he's never subject to the whims of culture. God delivered to the apostles a set of instructions that you and I have recorded in our Bibles that were prepared before the foundations of the earth. And those instructions will outlast this heavens and this earth, according to Scripture. Ironically, long after all human culture has gone or has transformed, these words will still remain in effect. That's the testimony of the word of God, which is why the writer says in verse nine that we are not to be carried away by other teaching. He knew that the writers of the New Testament, the apostles, would deliver a truth that would be maligned by those who would claim it's no longer relevant. And so he reminds us, even now, through the testimony of this word, through the centuries that have transpired since then, to stay faithful to what was taught, because, friends, it's still the right thing as much now as it was then. But there are those who will bring what he calls varied and strange teaching into the church. And through this confusing and false teaching, they're going to try to lead people away from the truth that was delivered once for all to the saints, through the apostles. That's the enemy's program. The enemy does not promote a certain false teaching. What he promotes is opposition to a certain truthful teaching. 
He doesn't care which false teaching you choose to chase after. He really is completely ecumenical when it comes to what false teaching you would prefer. Just so long as you don't follow the truth, he's fine with whatever false thing catches your eye. So Satan is always at work trying to create something new, something varied, as the writer says, something strange, something that is catchy, so that it would draw people's interest away from the scriptures. This is a danger in the church as well, by the way. The danger is that we get tired and bored with the regular, with the routine, with the old, in terms of the teaching, and assume that when something new and exciting shows up, it has value merely because it's new and exciting. There's a nature to us that likes that. Humanity is wired to want the new thing. That's where fads come from, something new and different. But just as they come, they eventually go. Because we get bored with them and we need, again, something new and different. The Word of God isn't like that. It's eternally new in our hearts in the sense that it never loses its power to inform us. But it will never change to suit the whims of human beings on earth. For if it did so, then it would have no power whatsoever. So the believer cannot allow him or herself to be caught up in false strange and varied things that flow in and flow out of the church that are not rooted in the word. Instead, the writer says, you know what you're strengthened by? Grace. By God's grace, which means this to be strengthened by grace means to be reinforced in our Christian liberty, resting in Christ's work alone. The more I can build you up in the understanding that you rest in a work done by Christ, you do not depend on your own works to be acceptable to God. If you understand that and you can live in that, you are empowered to serve God in tremendous ways. But as long as you think you have to do something to please God, if you think your relationship with God is dependent on works, then you will become hampered by that. You'll become tied to that notion to such a degree that you're limited in what you can go do for God. Now your whole focus will be on doing just those few things someone has taught you you have to do in order to keep God happy, rather than being free to follow him wherever he sends you. Paul says in Colossians, Colossians 2, 20-23, he says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, which is a way of saying if you become a believer in Jesus Christ, why, Paul asks, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. One of my favorite Passages about liberty in the Bible is right there. Colossians 2. Paul says, by Christ's death, you and I, by faith in Christ, have been set free from the principles of the world. It's an interesting insight. These are principles of the world. That refers to works of flesh that try to earn God's pleasure. That's what the world thinks. That's the economy of how the world approaches God. I do something for God, and in a kind of quid pro quo relationship, he responds by doing something for me. That's the way the world thinks. That's an elementary principle of the world. Paul says you've been set free from that when you understand the truth of the gospel. Having become partakers of God's grace, you and I don't concern ourselves anymore with rules that demand we keep strict lifestyles of some kind in order to keep us, quote, clean. All the things Paul mentioned, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, all of those are references to the way the Levitical laws of Israel enforced ritual cleanliness. Can't touch a dead body. 
don't handle certain things, don't eat certain foods. All of these things were designed to keep ritual cleanliness under the constraints of the law. They had a purpose in their day and they served that purpose for a time. Paul says, why would you resubmit yourself to such nonsense now if you've been set free from any of those constraints by having Christ's work stand in your place? You can't improve on what Christ did by your own works. So he says, these things have the appearance to the world as being wise, the appearance of wisdom. But he says, they're merely harsh treatment of your own body for no benefit. For no benefit. Once your soul, friends, has been made clean by the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ, then the rules that try to make you ritually clean have no purpose and no value. You cannot improve on the cleanness that God himself has done for you in your spirit in Christ. There's no way to make more clean what God has purified by grace. So Paul says, don't bother with that. And the writer in verse 9 says, you notice he mentions food in verse 9 as well. He's referring again to these concepts, to these thoughts that say, by how I constrain my life in earthly terms, I improve my relationship with God in spiritual terms. Now, he mentions food here because, remember, this writer, Hebrews, after all, is writing to the Jewish believers in the early church. And in the church at that time, Jewish believers were being tempted by false teachers to resubmit to the dietary restrictions of the Levitical system. To go back, in other words, to what they had known as Jews. And they were being told at that time they should only eat certain foods, the kosher foods that were allowed under the law, for doing otherwise was injuring their relationship with God. Those were the varied and strange teachings that the Hebrew writer here is talking about. Teachings that claim that when you abstain from certain foods, you make yourself more pleasing to God, more holy, more spiritually clean. Friends, that's false. There is nothing you can put in your mouth or not put in your mouth in terms of food that changes your relationship with God one iota once you have come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the teaching of Scripture. The writer says these teachings were not capable of producing the spiritual benefit that their proponents were claiming. Only resting in God's grace holds any potential to grow you spiritually. And since Jesus Christ never changes, you don't need to depart from his word to seek some additional advantage or some secret solution that some new guy rides into town and teaches you that you have to incorporate into your Christian practice. You can set all that nonsense aside. Isn't that freeing? Isn't that wonderful to know that somebody isn't going to show up tomorrow and add some burden that you didn't know you had to keep? They don't exist apart from faith in the gospel. That's the only requirement. Some today are making this same mistake again. It's become vogue, very fashionable, as they like to call themselves messianic ministries, which is to say Christians playing Jew, romanticizing what it means to be Jewish, trying to keep only the parts of the law they prefer, I might add, not the whole of it, because no one keeps the whole of it, but they dabble in it. They learn Hebrew. They dress up like Jews. They conduct a church service like a Jewish synagogue service. They eat only certain foods. They honor all the festivals all year long. They have been convinced by various Jewish or Messianic movement teachers within the church that they have to submit to all of these things in order to please God. Now, some are practicing these things merely out of personal health reasons or as a means of honoring Christ. And in those cases, the Christian has liberty to do so, and they are free to do it. And there is no condemnation for that. But nonetheless, if they choose to do that, they need to also be careful to ensure that their witness doesn't confuse other Christians into thinking that what they choose to do is now what must be done. And some do not make any effort to distinguish that. In fact, some go the other way and actually teach that it is required. And that's when 
They have gone against the word of God. If you and I or anyone were to practice such things, thinking that they are obligated to do it or believing that they make themselves more holy or pleasing to God when they do it, their practice is wrong. It is a testimony of their spiritual immaturity and their ignorance of Scripture, not a testimony of their holiness or sanctification. And that testimony is false and potentially harmful within the church. That's this writer's concern as well. You notice he's not saying you can have it if you like it. He's saying it's wrong to do it because it doesn't even present the benefits that you claim. It has the potential, friends, to lead others to doubt the sufficiency of God's grace. Think about that for a minute. When one Christian begins to act as if these works are essential to your relationship with Christ, you cause others to doubt, is grace enough? Are those works necessary? Ironically, those who claim that the dietary restrictions of the law are appropriate for a Christian to keep, they will often cite Hebrews 13.8 in support of their practice. They'll say, well, Jesus never changes. And therefore, his instructions have never changed, and therefore what was given in the law to Israel in the past is still true for us today. That's how they try to reason out the logic. But those who say such things are plainly misinterpreting Hebrews 13.8. They are also misunderstanding the purpose of the law, and they're conveniently ignoring much of the New Testament on the topic of the law in the life of the Christian. First of all, Hebrews 13.8 isn't saying that Jesus' instructions never change. It says Jesus himself never changes. But God's program changes across the pages of the Bible. You can see that plainly as you just look through what's written there. For example, in the garden, people ate only plants. And then after the flood, God told us we could eat animals. And then later to Israel, he said, you can eat animals and plants, but only certain ones. And then to the church, he says, you can eat anything you like. These are changes as a part of God's eternal, unchanging purpose. But the program, the instructions have varied as God has seen fit to issue them for reasons of his own. So we come to understand by studying the Bible that God himself never changes. His eternal purpose never changes. His holiness never changes. His word never changes. But in the process of moving us through history, God will issue different instructions at different times. We follow what we receive and they're never contradictory. They're all leading to the same outcome. As a New Testament believer, we have in our scriptures the clear teaching we are under grace and therefore we are free from preoccupation with foods or with any kind of works that are intended to hold us to God, to keep us sanctified in that respect. Don't let a physical passing thing become a substitute for resting in God's grace. But unfortunately, the strange teachings of that day went beyond just how they ate. It went deeper than that, as you're going to see in the next section. There were also false teachers enticing Christians to offer sacrifices at the Jewish temple, again, as part of some thinking that you had to do these things if you're going to remain in God's favor. Look at verses 10 through 16. He says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. 
Now, the writer doesn't come out here and name the false teaching that he's working against, but you can tell what's bothering him. First, it was about those who would teach you have to use the dietary laws as a means of pleasing God. Now it's about literal animal sacrifice in the temple. Friends, the essential act of service to God has always been sacrifice. Sacrifice is the necessary payment for sin. Sacrifice appeases the wrath of God. Sacrifice restores fellowship from Abel to Noah to Abraham to Moses to all of Israel and even to the church today. Sacrifice is at the heart of worship and always has been. Under the new covenant, though, our sacrifice is found in the body and blood of Jesus Christ sacrificed in our place. That is the one and only sacrifice required in the new covenant. We don't repeat that process. We don't subject additional animals to death as a means of maintaining something. It was performed in Christ's blood once for all. But Paul then teaches us in Romans 12, and this writer echoes it here, that now that we have been saved by that sacrifice of flesh and blood, we in turn are to make our lives a living sacrifice for God. He died for us, so we live for him. We sacrifice our desires to suit his desires. We sacrifice our priorities to accomplish his priorities. It's a decent trade when you think about it. You get heaven, you get saved from the penalty of your sin in hell, you get all that comes with heaven, and what is he asking for you in the meantime? He's asking you to live this earthly life, what little of it remains for all of us, for him. Not a bad deal. Not a bad deal. That's the proper mindset of the new covenant sacrifice upon which your fellowship with God is maintained. But in the day the writer wrote this, the Judaizers were teaching the Jewish believers still had to go back to the temple in the heart of Jerusalem, take their goats and their sheep and whatever else, and cut them open and spill their blood, do the whole routine just as they had been taught at the Jewish temple. That was another of these strange and varied teachings the writer is referring to. And it's another example of drawing a believer away from resting in grace and putting them back into bondage to some work that is not of any importance to them. But friends, this teaching is even worse because it has the potential to erode a believer's confidence in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. If it were true that an animal sacrifice was still required to remain in God's grace, then what would we be saying about the meaning and the power of Christ's sacrifice on the cross? What good was that? What was Christ's part if I've still got to do my part, if it's all dependent on me in the end? This writer is concerned that these people in his day were being taught they still had to do something to add to what Christ did, which negates what Christ did. I love the way he argues this. He says temple sacrifices are useless. And look how he proves this. He highlights the role of the priest in the temple. The priest was the one who officiated for you in that sacrifice of the animal you delivered. You worked with the priest to get that done. Remember, we studied this earlier in this letter, the role of every priest, the word itself means Someone who represents God before men and represents men before God. They're an intercessor in that respect, right? So the writer points out, you are going to a person, a priest, in a temple, seeking intercession, seeking their officiating, when they themselves aren't even qualified to turn around and come to our place and eat at our altar, so to speak. Eating at the Christian altar, that's a reference to participating in the communion meal. But that itself is a picture when you participate in the communion meal, that's a picture of the Lord's death on the cross for our sins. The blood and the flesh of Christ being symbolized in that meal. The writer is saying the priests in the temple are not believers. They could not even qualify to eat the communion meal in your own church because they don't accept Jesus as Messiah. But yet you're going to go to them and expect them to intercede for you. They're officiating on your behalf before God. Is that making any sense? 
If God really expected the Jewish believer in that day to go back to the temple and, and sacrifice, why would he expect them to do that through the officiating of a person who doesn't even know him? It's bizarre. But somehow Christians felt necessary to do that. How sadly ironic that a Christian would seek the services of an unbelieving priest who did not even know his own intercessor, Christ. Certainly no Christian should be in that situation. In verses 11 and 12, the writer reminds us that animals sacrificed under that Levitical system were never more than just pictures of the one true sacrifice that was going to come through Christ. And he does that by just highlighting one detail. He says, you know, the bodies of those animals, after they were cut up and bloodied, those animals had to be disposed of. They were taken outside the city, outside the temple, and they were burned outside in a trash heap, which interestingly was called Gehenna in Greek, which is where we get the word hell from, a place of continual burning. And so these, these animals are thrown out into a heap that's burning all the time because there's always new animals being thrown into the heap. And then he says that whole experience with the animals was picturing Christ in the way God developed it. The Lord himself was crucified outside the city walls. His body was disposed of, in other words, outside the city walls rather than at the temple. And that is a picture that the Lord intended for us to see so that we would understand this sacrificial system is not the fulfillment of anything. It's leading to something. It's pointing us to something. It's showing us what will come in Christ. Because this church was willing to succumb to this strange and false teaching, they were in danger of undermining their witness. Think about what they told the world every time they went back to the temple and cut up another animal. What were they communicating to the world about Christianity? Instead of remembering the teaching of the apostles and holding to that teaching, they were drifting away, setting aside their witness and telling the world that Christ was not sufficient. You need something more. In fact, what you need is what you already have. Well, exactly where would I need Christ in that theology then? If you tell me I still have to do the old way on top of the new way, why do I need the new way? I was already doing the old. This is the ever present danger for the church. We don't have a temple in Jerusalem. We don't have animals being cut open. That's not specifically what our temptation is. No, but there are always strange and varied teachings coming into the church. Back then, it was you must participate under the law. Today, it's going to be different, perhaps. Maybe today it's going to be some weird and varied teaching about spiritual gifts. You have to show certain gifts. You have to speak in certain ways or, well, you're not there yet. Or maybe it'll be about prosperity or healing. Oh, you're not rich yet? Well, you're not with God yet. You haven't given enough money. You're not healed? Well, you didn't have enough faith. You're somehow short of where you should be with God. It goes on and on and on. Strange, varied teachings whose purpose is to undermine your confidence in the grace of God, in resting in that grace. Whatever captivates the church and distracts us from Christ leads into that same danger. What we need instead, friends, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, preaching Christ and him crucified to the world, it's foolishness. But to us, it's the power of God for salvation. That's all you needed. Usually this transition from the true gospel to something less is a result of misplaced affections or a desire to fit into the culture. What was the concern in the writer's day? Well, it was a motivation to fit into the Jewish culture and avoid persecution from those Jews, because that's what would happen. You were a Jew one day and you made a profession in Christ the next. You were persona non grata in your own community and you were suddenly on a target for attack by anyone who was out to get this new Christian movement. Notice in verse 13, the writer calls upon his audience to be willing to suffer reproach with Christ. Let's go outside the gate with him. Let's be crucified with him, so to speak. 
if they returned into the Jewish community to placate them, then they were going to be going against their witness. And every time a Christian was willing to do that, the Jewish world saw that as a victory against Christianity. They did not see it as promoting the faith. They saw it as showing the faith to be weak and hollow. And as a result, the witness of those individuals was lost. The writer says, don't be afraid of suffering persecution for Christ. He suffered for us, and therefore, he has every right, perhaps to call upon you and I to suffer for his name's sake. But if you try to avoid that, if we tell ourselves we'd rather get along with the world than to stand firm in our faith and be persecuted for it, then we are engaging in something very unbiblical and very unhealthy and very ineffective for the purpose of the church. Notice the writer says in verse 14 that Jewish believers did not have a lasting city. It's one of the verses you go to to date this letter historically. Some have argued this was written after the temple was destroyed. I think this verse among several is a clear indication this was written before the city and the temple with it were destroyed. Because after all, he's referring to Christians who were going into the temple to sacrifice. That's clear enough. Secondly, he even alludes here to the fact that this city is not going to last forever. I suspect the writer had some indication from the spirit that this time for the city of Jerusalem and the temple was coming to an end. He said earlier in the letter it was soon to disappear. And as a result, he's reminding his audience, why are you putting your faith and trust in something God himself intends to destroy very soon? An earthly city, Jerusalem. Symbols of unbelieving Israel. Instead, he says, you have to remain focused on the eternal city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the one that will be our future home. As I like to say it, we have to live with eyes for eternity which means considering all your actions from an eternal point of view and making adjustments accordingly. When you live this way, you come to a different conclusion about so many things in your life. If you live with eyes for eternity and you're faced with a choice of suffering persecution for Christ or forsaking your witness, you're going to make the right choice when you're thinking about it from an eternal point of view. If you're not, if your eyes are down and you're thinking only about the here and now, well, then you're likely to make the wrong choice. So with that perspective, you'll understand What the writer says in verse 15, he says, if you desire to make a sacrifice to God, if that's your heart and you're seeking an outlet, well, he says, let's do it the way God receives it, because he ain't going to receive it at a temple. He says the way you're to give sacrifice to God is in this continual manner of how you live, beginning with the fruit of your lips. That is to testify with your mouth to the truth of the gospel, naming Christ as Lord. In other words, teaching publicly about his grace, giving thanks to him for his mercy, doing what we're called to do as a church. Witness to these things. That's sacrifice. You know why that's sacrifice? Because the more you do it, the more the world's going to hate you. And I don't mean doing it arrogantly, doing it in such a way that you encourage their discontent. I'm saying just being bold, being open, living your faith. When the world wants to talk about sexuality in a certain way and you want to talk about it in a biblical way, you'll see. When the world wants to talk about creation a certain way and you want to talk about it a different way, watch out. Persecution's coming. Even if you just want to remind people that sin has consequences, watch out. People won't like to hear that. No one's ever liked to hear that. But we've all needed to hear it at least once in order to understand grace. That's the acceptable form of sacrifice that we are called to offer God. And it is sacrifice. Finally, the writer says, don't neglect to do good and share with others in what you have. Because those things are also sacrifices of material things, of time, talent, treasure, as we say. You don't need to return to the old means of sacrifice. You don't have to go back to the law. You don't have to go back to restraining yourself from certain things in order to feel pious about your life. Turn that outward and sacrifice the things of life that are freely given to you for others' sake and use it to glorify the Lord. Do that kind of sacrifice and the Lord is pleased. 
do that and there's a heavenly reward. You don't need ritual. You don't need to invent your own rules or others give them to you. You don't need new forms of legalism. Just do what the Spirit leads us to do in the love of Christ. Know and follow his word. Follow the example of the apostles. Make your life a living sacrifice and live with eyes for eternity. Let's go to prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminder. Thank you, Father, for the the spirit in us who can show us the, the way to do these things. Thank you, Father, for the word, for the men who first gave it to the church and who continue to speak to us through the pages of our Bible. But, Father, I encourage you to encourage each of us, Father, to consider what you've said here this morning. I ask that you would convict us each on where we can do better. Not in works designed to make us holy or righteous, Father, but in sacrifices born out of a love for you and a recognition of your mercy and kindness and grace. Sacrifices intended to advance the witness of the church, to reach more men and women, not to puff ourselves up, but to glorify the name of Christ among the nations. Show us how we may do those things, Father. And as we do so, Father, protect us from persecution. Guide our mouth and our hand to do things in the right way. Give us humility and a humble heart as we go around speaking truth. And open ears, Father, so that as we turn to one person or the next with the truth and their ears are open and their heart responds, we would be encouraged by that. And men, and in seeing that response, Father, we would be led to do it more and more and more. I pray for that cycle in our lives, Father. And let Oak Hill Bible Church just be one small wheel in that machine, something that you can use to encourage each of us in our walk. Keep us faithful to the word, Father, and to those who delivered it to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.